today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. On today's show, can Elon Musk save GM workers? Brexit, where the heck are we now? And is Uber going public? It's all coming up on the podcast. Thanks for listening. Making some noise over the weekend, Elon Musk, I guess he was on uh, 60 Minutes and, and asked if he was interested in buying some GM plants uh, to start assembling Teslas. Tesla, of course, a cutting-edge company, but now has run into issues. Uh, how do you go from dream to an actual profitable car company? Let's bring in Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, uh, Carleton University. He is with us now. Ian, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Do you think there's a snowball's chance in hell of a Tesla uh, 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 operation going into an old GM plant? Um, no, I don't. I, I don't think so. Um, and I'll explain why. And I've been teaching the Tesla case study. It's a Harvard Business Review case study. Actually, there's a series of them. I've been using it almost every year for the past five or six years because the students are really fascinated by it and him, by Elon Musk. Um, and uh, he's a he's a remarkable success story as somebody who is really good at promoting himself and his and the company. But when you actually look at the actual track record of cars physically produced, it, they're infinitesimally tiny. Uh, my my joke in the classroom is that Tesla is not an automotive manufacturer. They're a company that talks about making cars. They don't make cars. Um, and that's not unkind. Some may think it's unkind. I looked up just before I came on to talk to you. There, he is claiming that they'll get up to 300,000 cars this year. Uh, the audited figures I've seen are far, far fewer than that. People may say, well, gee whiz, 300,000 cars a year is a lot of cars. Well, if you look at the top 10 or top 20 manufacturers in the world, Toyota produces the most cars annually, 2016 data, over 10 million cars. Volkswagen's number two at just over 10 million. Hyundai, these are world production figures. Hyundai, Kia is almost 8 million. General Motors, 7.8 million. So when you go down to the top 20, even the 20th largest, Geely, which is a Chinese auto company, they're producing 1.3 million cars a year. So Tesla is not even on the radar screen of the top 20, and um, and it's not making money. Um, it's a very, very tough business. I'm not trying to put down Elon Musk. Uh, making cars is brutally, brutally expensive. It's becoming more and more high-tech, and you can really lose your shirt in this industry. Um, and it, even six months ago, many of the capital market investors and analysts were predicting that Tesla was going to be bankrupt by the end of the year. These are serious people. These are people that study companies all the time. And uh, so it's by no means clear that Tesla is going to make it. We don't yet know. But um, it, it's, it's, it's in survival mode, I think. And uh, so the only way, to answer your question now, that I could see them going in there, into those plants I'm talking outside of Toronto, is if the, uh, uh, the governments, federal, provincial, maybe municipal, offered him so much money, so much free taxpayer dollars that it would be crazy not to go in there. In other words, if you can get so much money out of it, uh, more than you even are going to put in, well, then that would might change the uh, the equation. When this all started, when this company started, lots of buzz, lots of uh, lots of promotion, uh, lots of attention. What do what challenges do they have moving forward, growing this company? Because it appears they have to take it to the next level, or they will not survive. That's exactly my view. 
I've read, I don't want to say I've read every interview he's ever given because he talks to the media all the time and he tweets like crazy, but I've read some of his big, serious interviews, especially at the beginning. And he had some very, because I teach strategy, that's what I've been teaching for 30 years, and so I'm fascinated by someone who has a strategic vision with strategies for his company. And, and I'll say it in a nutshell because it was very clear and transparent from Elon Musk. He had this view that there were a ton of inefficiencies in the auto industry, automotive manufacturing industry, by all of the big companies, the Chryslers and the Toyotas and the Hondas and the GMs. And he thought that you could jump over those barriers, so to speak, uh, by avoiding a lot of the problems. He didn't think that there were economies of scale in this industry where you had to produce large numbers of cars in order to break even. And and so he put his mouth money where his mouth was, and he raised a lot of capital, which he's mostly spent, and tried to develop cars according to his model. He thought, well, you know, I'll sell direct online to the customer. I won't have to have an expensive dealer network, uh, things like that. And what it's he's learned, and I think the world has learned, is that those uh, barriers to entry to go into the automotive manufacturing industry are very real. And they're even bigger than we thought they were. And he is learning that day by day, uh, literally day by day, in trying to come up with cars to sell to the marketplace. It is a frightfully expensive business. I mean, one new car plant, and this is American data, one new car plant built from scratch from Greenfield today is about $5 billion. That's one plant. <laughs> Not dozens of plants, one plant. And then you've got to have R&D. You've got to develop some technologies to build the car. You know, so my point is the economies of scale are getting bigger. In fact, the late Sergio uh, Marchioni, brilliant man, brilliant man, the Canadian-Italian CEO of uh, Fiat Chrysler, argued, was trying to merge his company with General Motors or another company because he argued that the barriers to entry are getting bigger, not smaller, the R&D is going through the roof because of autonomous technology demands and new batteries and, and electric cars. And he argued that the market will not support these, what he called, small companies like Chrysler, only producing about 4 million cars a year. Remember, Tesla is producing a less than 200,000 cars a year. And so he was trying to merge to create an even bigger company. And, and so what Tesla is doing is being is contradicted what what he's trying to do with his business strategies is being contradicted by the reality of making cars and so that's why I'm still I keep, I've been predicting for 3 years that it's going to fail not because he's a bad man he's a brilliant guy but you can't overcome the laws of economics and and I think uh, Tesla won't make it it'll probably get bought up by somebody by one of the big uh, five, um, because it's just he's burned up all the capital that he's raised, and he's raised a lot of capital, and he's still not even close to ramping up to a serious size company that produces three or four or five million cars a year. So I, that's why I don't think he'll be opening up in uh, Toronto unless they basically the, the governments fund literally every last dollar of the expenditures. Uh, I was just about to, to ask that question. What are the chances of this company being bought out or purchased by a major company? I think uh, I'm not suggesting at all the effort because there has been a real learning curve there. There's been and learning is valuable money. It's it's a form of uh, R and D, uh, and and they have gone down that road and it has a brand name. Uh, but a brand name can become a product line for another company. Think of Bombardier and that remarkable plane that they built. 
and they sold not the whole company Bombardier. They just sold the plane, the R and D of that plane, to Airbus, which rebranded it. I think the A three twenty one or something. So it went from being a a big part of the Bombardier company to becoming a product line at Airbus. I could see one of the big companies, and I mean in the top five or six, probably not in the top three. I mean not Toyota and not Volkswagen and not Hyundai, but one of the in the smaller in the top ten. Buying it and keeping the brand name because Tesla's got a it's got an amazing brand name value recognition uh, around the world and uh, I could see it getting bought up by a company that wants a the brand name because the advertising the uh, brand name recognition advertising is phenomenal and also because there is some valuable R and D in there. Uh, that they have developed in, in um, both in the development of the batteries and the f- car frame and, and, of course, the assembly. And uh, so I, I think it'll probably ultimately um, get bought out. He said he wants to focus exclusively on his uh, uh, space company. And, uh, I mean, he's trying to run two completely different industries, companies, and two completely different industries going in, in different directions. And that's very, very difficult. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if he gets bought. I was watching portions of the 60-minute interview yeah. from last night, and it sounded like he wasn't necessarily interested in building cars. What he was interested in just providing uh, an alternative, an electric vehicle moving forward. So that, to me, opened up the door. If somebody else wants to take this over, yeah, go ahead. Bring in the cash infusion. Let's go. That's exactly right. And and then on top of that, he had the real serious problems with the SEC. The SEC is the regulatory body of the capital markets in the states, the equivalent of the Ontario Securities Commission. And the SEC in the states is, is ruthless, um, and they're very tough. Uh, I tell my students again, you know, when people say, oh, you know, white-collar criminals, you know, they get away with murder. No, 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 no. The SEC is putting white-collar uh, executives in jail left, right, and center in the States. It's one of the most dangerous occupations today, uh, and they're going after them uh, left, right, and center and, and prosecuting them. And they went after Elon Musk. They fined him $20 million personally. Now, I call that real money. Of course, I'm not rich, <laughs> but that's real money. And they prohibited him, and they have the authority to, uh, to do this. They prohibited him from being a CEO for the next three years. That's how powerful the SEC is. And and so he had to step down as the CEO, and one of the members of the board uh, of Tesla became the CEO. And although he's understood to be the visionary, you know, and the entrepreneur, he's no longer the CEO of Tesla because of the, his run-ins with the SEC, because they're so tough on what you can say to the markets, what you can say to investors, and all of his tweeting and his loose comments to the media got him into big trouble uh, with the SEC. And he became, in fact, in that interview last night, he was saying how cynical he was about the SEC, mm-hmm. and he didn't respect the SEC. And that sounds to me like someone who uh, isn't planning on staying around in that business uh, to deal with the SEC, because if you're in that business, and you're raising capital, you're going to be in bed with the SEC whether you want to be or not. So has Tesla peaked the way it, we, we know it now until there is a mass, a mass cash infusion into this company in some way? Yeah, I think he's got to. They were burning the, the, the slang term by the, the venture capitalist companies and the, and the Goldman Sachs companies that raised capital was the burn rate. And he was burning cash far faster then he was bringing new capital cash in. And when you're building a brand new company, or a, it's not just a company. 
I don't want to leave that with your listeners. You can be a very big, successful, established company uh, developing a brand new product, and you can be burning cash. Just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, Boeing, one of the most famous companies in the world, spent $25 billion U.S. dollars to build the Dreamliner. I've actually flown on the Dreamliner as a customer of Air Canada, and I don't consult any of these companies whatsoever. And uh, But the Dreamliner is a dream to fly on. For those of you people that haven't flown on it, it's flying Air Canada is using it going to Europe and to Asia. Amazing plane. But $25 billion. Boeing almost broke, bankrupted their company developing it. And so their burn rate was very big. Well, Boeing also has a huge amount of cash flow. Their annual revenues from the sale of existing planes is $100 billion a year. Tesla doesn't have that cushion, that, that fallback, that kind of money. So the only way they can continue to do the R&D and develop uh, to, get, you know, to come up with a viable product is to go raise more money and tell people more make more promises mm. and uh, look what we're going to do if you invest in us and then you run afoul of the sec if you make statements that are not supportable or are misleading and so uh, again i think that investors are running out of patience with tesla and and that's why i think that he's probably behind the scenes uh dealing with someone like a goldman sachs uh because they arrange buyouts um, uh, uh, when co- clients come to them. And I wouldn't be surprised if one of those big companies like a Goldman is working behind the scenes for to arrange eventually uh, a buyout of Tesla and to take uh, Elon Musk out of that company completely. All right, Ian, I can't let you go without asking you your thoughts on what happened uh, in Vancouver over the weekend right. and the arrest of the uh, Huawei CFO. Where's this going? Just just give me two minutes on this, or one minute if you can, because yep. uh, I'm going to give you a very nuanced. I've been teaching in China for 20 years, every once a year going in and teaching MBA. Love going over there, but I also go over with my eyes wide open, not wide shut. China is not a democracy. It's not a rule of law country. It, uh, it's not like Canada or the United States at all, point one, um, and that's important. Point two Huawei, and I'm very familiar with Huawei, and I don't consult again or have any relationships with them, but in China, Huawei is not just another company. It is their Microsoft. It is their Apple. And the founder and and the person who created Huawei from scratch is revered as almost a god, just like Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. And this woman who was arrested was his daughter. So this is the, 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 the star corporation in the, in the Chinese universe. And Canada is being perceived as the company that went in acting as the agent for the United States for political reasons, meaning that the U.S. is trying to put pressure on China in the trade negotiations and that this is one of their tactics and that we were going along with them. That's the perception and that's what's, what's coming out of China. And so now... Uh, and, and now my fourth point, I don't want to minimize the problems with Huawei. It is well known. I've, been, I've read, actually, the Senate report, U.S. Senate report of a year ago on Huawei. They, the U.S. intelligence agency, some of the European agents, intelligence agencies, the Australians and New Zealand, they see Huawei as a threat to national security because they believe it works very, very closely with the People's Republic of China, with the intelligence agency there, to spy on Western organizations. Whether it's true or not, I cannot say. I don't know. But there's a strong belief that they're not on the up and up. So I'm giving you the good and the bad, the pluses and the minuses. I think we have to be extremely careful 
because we do not want to get into the middle of a big fight between the two largest economies on the planet Earth, China and the United States. And what we did is to drag us in the middle of that fight. I'm not suggesting we're not rule-of-law country. Of course we are. Of course we respect extradition treaties. But you know, there are ways and there are ways. And they could have said, the Canadian government could have said to the Americans, well, we need approval from the higher-ups, and you know, we've got to send the chain of command up the chain of command. And in the meantime, whoops, the woman got on another plane and went somewhere else. Hmm. And we weren't able to arrest her. Hmm. Gosh darn. These things happen, you know. Ian Lee, go ahead. didn't need that. Didn't need it. Ian Lee, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Britain's Prime Minister has delayed a crucial vote that was scheduled for tomorrow in regards to Brexit. It looks like uh, this was going to be a rout, as they say. And uh, as a result, uh, this leaves the whole discussion about leaving the European Union up in the air on the eve of the vote. Let's bring in Professor Mel Cap, Department of Political Science, School of Public Policy and Governance, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Mel, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Pleasure to be here. Are you surprised where we are now? Well, I'm uh, surprised only insofar as I thought she was going to lose the vote. And I've been wrong all along. Uh, (laughs) She just didn't have the vote. Uh, I forgot about the option of pulling the question. Why pull the question? Why do this now? Well, because she was going to lose. There had been over 100 of her own members who had decided they would vote against her. I mean, consider where she is. She's got a a middle, a middling option, which uh, allows her to preserve the United Kingdom and keep it united, but also keeps one foot in the European Union. And uh, the Brexiters don't like that, and the U and the Remainers don't like that. So if the Leave people hate it and the the Remain people hate it, uh, she was going to lose. And she wisely, I think, pulled the plug on the vote. Uh, but it's now, I think, scheduled for uh, the third week of January. Uh, she still has to have Parliament vote on it. What can she do in this time before the next vote? Well, there's about two or three different options. She can try to bring further concessions from uh, the European Union, and they've told her to take a hike on that. Uh, she could have a um, political statement that could be attached to the withdrawal Uh, act and these political statements might give some people comfort or she can build her consensus among her own political actors within the conservative party and in the parliament of uh, the house of commons of the united kingdom uh if she was a you know a a politician of great uh talent she'd be able to build that consensus i'm afraid that that's not really what her strength has been and she has a party that is totally divided. Uh, you talked about the EU and their response to all of this. Do they care that she's having trouble selling this back home? Well, they care uh, because they want something that will uh, last uh, one way or the other. Uh, but the, there was a decision of the European Court of Justice just today which said that Britain can extend the deadline of March 29th, 2019, uh, which was the result of triggering Article 50 of the European Union, of the uh, Treaty of Lisbon. And uh, that allows her to have more time to build a consensus. 
So arguably, um, with that uh, arrangement to extend the deadline, uh, she can either negotiate a better deal, highly unlikely, uh, or she can uh, build more of a consensus internally, uh, also highly unlikely. But it's a bit of a steam vent to allow her to extend. That being said, nobody likes this, but does anybody have the solution? No. I mean, where, so I, mean, the, I mean, it's great to vote against something, but then where do we go from here? Well, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. Boris Johnson said he wanted to have his cake and eat it, too. Well, guess what? You can't do that. Uh, she wants to have no formalities between uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, and that's been there since 1998 and the Good Friday Agreement, so 20 years. And uh, she also doesn't want to draw a boundary down the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and Britain, uh, because she wants to have the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So that's having your cake and eating it too. You're not going to have a border at the six counties and the Republic, and you're not going to have a border at uh, the Irish Sea, then you have to be in the European Union. And that's what she negotiated was a deal that sort of keeps her one foot in and one foot out. And that's a bit of a make everybody angry solution. So say she had held the vote and lost and presume the government's defeated. Again, what would the other option be? What's the solution? Okay, you're now your party's in party or in power, but what are you bringing to the table? Well, the the real problem was that this was not going to be a uh, a confidence motion in and of itself. If she lost the vote on the withdrawal act, she could still continue as a prime minister. But my guess is there would be several people who would move a confidence motion, and then she would the government would fall. Uh, it's now there is an argument that says nobody wants an election and that uh, they, they would avoid a, uh, a government uh, confidence, losing a confidence motion. But it's highly unlikely to imagine how it could proceed with the confidence of the House. Uh, if you vote against the government's primary proposal, the most important thing that they've done for two years, and you defeat the government on it, mm. Uh, sounds to me like the government has to fall. And the Queen doesn't have anybody to go to. Jeremy Corbyn couldn't form a government either, which means that she might dissolve Parliament and then uh, you have an election. And nobody has any clue uh, how that would resolve because the public actually is now 56% against Brexit. No party will, will run in favor of Brexit. Uh, sorry, in favor of uh, the union. When all of this went down way back when and we woke up the next morning and realized there was, in fact, going to be a Brexit and, and, and left a, a, a lot of people stunned, especially there, many questioned whether this was final and whether it could be you could put the genie back in the bottle. And most said no. Is that still the same? Uh, that, I, that's a very good question. I don't have an answer to it. In June of uh, 2016, when the vote was the referendum was held, it was an advisory referendum. Nobody had to do anything. David Cameron was the prime minister, and he thought he'd be able to uh, have Brexit uh, re refused, uh, that Britons would not vote for it. He was wrong. They did, by a very slim majority. But even then, he could have said, well, thank you for your advice. 
we think that's a dumb idea. We're not doing it. Get somebody else to be prime minister. Um, and if that had happened, it would have been a political crisis, but it would not have been uh, absolute stupidity. Where we are now is, I'm not going to say absolute stupidity, but we are in a very bad place. Does, can you ever put the genie back in the bottle? It's conceivable that there is the possibility of a second referendum. Again, extending the March 29, 2019 deadline allows you to have potentially a, uh, uh, another election. It could have a referendum. And you could say the public doesn't want Brexit. But, boy, that's uh, a long way down the road, and it requires... I mean, when you have a referendum, people vote for other things. It isn't actually the wording in the referendum. Mm. And we've seen this in Canada. Mm. You know, the, the classic line is that what do Quebecers want? They want an independent Quebec and a strong and united Canada. Well, that's what people in, the, in Britain want. They want a, uh, an independent United Kingdom and a strong and united European Union. Will this be death by a thousand cuts simply because they will not be able to hammer out a deal that will appease everyone? Hard to say. I mean, this could drag on forever. Oh, look, look, even if she had won the vote uh, on her act in, uh, you know, today, if she had gone ahead with it and and been successful, it would still go on for years. I say it would be a decade, even if they proceed, because proceeding with the Withdrawal Act is the beginning of negotiations. They have, Canada just signed an agreement that if, Uh, Britain pulls out of the European Union, we will allow their airplanes to land here. We have an agreement with the European Union, not with with Great Britain or the United Kingdom. So that's one bilateral agreement. Imagine how many agreements the United Kingdom has to negotiate with 200 countries around the world. And imagine how many agreements they need. That was merely air transport. We need them in a wide array of other issues that they start from scratch on. And frankly, we tell them, get to the back of the line. Hmm. It's Uh, chaos. What would the EU think if all of a sudden there's another referendum on Brexit? I mean, are they not in a position of power now? Oh, so you want back in? For sure. But but, uh, that's why the decision of the European Court of Justice this morning was so important that it says that you can extend the deadline. And there's an interpretation which says you can reverse the decision of Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty. If that's true, then you're getting as close as possible to putting the genie back in the bottle. But it doesn't mean that the politics of this go away. So all those people who supported Brexit are going to still be there and still be very uh, very active politically. And they're mostly within or largely within the Conservative Party, the governing party. Can the UK stay within the European Union and still have their addresses concerned? Or is it at this point, you know, they've lost they've lost their, their bargaining power at this point? Partly that's true, but um, I mean, it's very unclear what their concerns are. Uh, you can't be, is, there are four freedoms that are required for the European Union. It's the freedom of uh, goods, services, capital, and labor. Uh, clearly, stopping immigration from the European Union, the Polish plumbers and the Slovenian waitresses, is partly what this was about. Uh, can they uh, have an influence on the mobility of labor and people? 
if they stay in the European Union, for sure they could. More so than if they have voted in favor of Theresa May's deal. Theresa May's deal basically says we'll take the rules of the European Union and we'll have no say in the councils of Europe. That's not very helpful. With uh, a judge opening the door that you could go backwards and put this genie back in the bottle, is that going to uh, is that going to raise more concerns within the UK that we don't even want this? We want to we want another referendum, or we want out of this altogether? Well, for sure. And uh, Michael Gove, who's the now most senior minister in the uh, uh, cabinet, who is uh, pushing for uh, leave. Uh, and Boris Johnson and David Davis and other MPs who are uh, in the Conservative Party are saying, we don't want to extend. We are happy to crash out of the European Union, to go over the edge of the cliff. To them, this is a good thing, not a bad thing. For just about everybody else, including the governor of the Bank of England and the the chancellor of the Exchequer and the head of the uh, Conference of uh, uh, Business uh, in the United uh, Kingdom, they all think it's a terrible idea. Uh, that that crashing out is dumb. But uh, you know there are many uh, interpretations of what the right, the next step should be, and it is not obvious to me what they are, and it's certainly not obvious to Theresa May. It's interesting what started and was supposedly supposed to unite the UK has just done the exact opposite. My goodness. Uh, What can we learn from this experiment? What can the rest of the world learn from this? Referendums on complex questions are a dumb idea. Uh, They, you know... Why are they a dumb idea? Why are they a dumb idea? We've spent essentially uh, a millennium uh, learning about representative democracy, and certainly for the last 250 years, have moved towards representative democracy, where we elect people to worry about complex issues, study them, learn about them, make deliberative judgments about them. And to ask the public about these complex questions is helpful as guidance, but not determinant. And any time you have a referendum that you say is going to determine the outcome of something, I get very skeptical. Uh, obviously, uh, the average Joe doesn't have the capacity for these sorts of discussions, let alone making these dis- uh, decisions. That being said, what kind of faith can they have in their leadership when clearly they feel they've been taken advantage of here? Well, my faith has gone down uh, watching what's going on in the United Kingdom. Uh, but indeed, we place a lot of uh, faith in our political leaders. Uh, you know, the famous uh, quote of uh, uh, Churchill that uh, this is uh, uh, democracy is, uh, is, is very unfortunate, but it's uh, better than all the other systems. Uh, we'll have to live with uh, these democratic principles and hope that we can attract good people to run for a public office and hope that they get elected. Are politicians to blame for this or the electorate who actually did it? Yes. <laughs> oh, my. Um, moving forward, is this, uh, does the U.K. just become exhausted and then whatever solution is, is, is palatable at that time they take? So that's, uh, I, I think the answer to that is probably yes, but it's, uh, it's actually more complicated than that because part of the problem is that the bandwidth of government to deal with many complex issues simultaneously is inherently low. 
they don't have a lot of capacity to deal with a dozen major complex issues. And this one has totally preoccupied the United Kingdom to the exclusion of everything else. So, yes, they have problems on the National Health Service. They have problems on an entrepreneurship and innovation strategy. They have problems on a whole array of public policy issues, just as we do. But there's only one that has captivated the attention of the United Kingdom, and that is Brexit. And so the political cost of focusing on that to the exclusion of everything else is enormous. So what will we, they, be talking about five years from now? (laughs) Good question, Scott. Uh, I haven't a clue. But my guess is Brexit will still be in the conversation, one way or the other. It almost seems that the damage is, is... is irreparable. It can't be repaired. It can't be fixed. I think that's partly true, that uh, these are irreversible uh, problems and challenges. And once you start the conversation, you can't get out of it. Uh, Having said that, um, you know, the Brits are enormously uh, capable and brilliant at muddling through. So Mm. there isn't a silver bullet but they're going to muddle through this, and they hope for the best. Are you confident something positive will come out of this, that we will no, have I'm, learned something from I'm this? I'm not confident of, of something positive whatsoever. I, am, uh, I do you know, expect that uh, there will be people, uh, there, there will be huge costs to be paid. Uh, I don't know that there will be anything positive that comes from it. And I have no confidence that they will actually learn the lesson that they shouldn't be posing these big questions like this in a referendum, that they shouldn't start the negotiations to get out of the union, that globalization and interdependence is the way of the future. These are the the lessons we need to to learn from this, uh, but I'm not convinced that the Britons themselves will. Mel Kapp has been with us, Professor, Department of Political Science, School of Public Policy and uh, Governance, University of Toronto. Mel, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Pleasure. Talk to you again. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. You might remember we talked to Lorraine Sommerfeld Sommerfeld, uh, a while ago in regard to an article she had posted. Uh, We're going to chat about that, another one that she has done. And, of course auto industry stuff, which, we, which means Uber talking about uh, going public and, uh, and offering an IPO. Lorraine Sommerfeld is with us, auto writer with Post Media, Motherload column in the spec, host of the Lemonade Card Show. The, uh, the first, uh, or the current column in the spec is Motherload, Overwhelmed, Overcome, Bold Over, all of all the overs. And here is Lorraine. Lorraine, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, same with you, Scott. Thanks. So thanks for the shout-out in the column. Why, why this column? Because this is nice. Oh, people are amazing. Like just viewers and readers and people listening to this, the support my family has received is phenomenal. And I'm going to get all weepy again, but the kids are blown away. We all are. Um, and this started it, This started last week. Lorraine uh, wrote a yeah. column and it talked about the journey that her and her family is going through with her son, Christopher, who has been diagnosed with a brain tumor. The good news is it's benign, but still, my goodness, what a shock for the family to go through in this process. And it's, then you got you got feedback from everyone. Oh, it, it's just been phenomenal. And he, he needs eye surgery for a totally unrelated disease. It, it's awful. And that's probably freaking me out even more because the tumor is benign. Um, but people have been, a friend of his put up a go, they're raising money. They've covered the cost of the surgery. I can't 
tell you the relief and mm. it, it's people are spectacular i mean i've always known that but my readers are the best <laughs> great column uh great story too it's great to see it's working out for you uh lorraine yeah. all right uh let's talk about uber and going public it's a company that makes lots of money but really doesn't make lots of money i mean they're profitable they've been valued at some 70 some odd million or billion dollars uh but what's this company worth well, on paper, it's worth something, but it's losing a billion dollars a quarter in reality. It's always lost money. Uh, IPOs are always lots of noise around them. Lyft is going to do it at the same time. They want to capitalize on um, what's going on before the recession hits because they know later part of 19 is not going to be good. And everyone's banking on this being the future. And people are thinking, okay, I, you know, I'll get shares in this now, and then it's going to be that thing that explodes my stink with Uber, and it's been the one I've always had, it's the same with a lot of these gig economy things, is that the actual people who do the work never see the rewards. They get pushed down harder and harder by these companies, and then we see those investors, those one percenters, the up tops, the CEOs, they make all the money, and the poor stuff that's doing all the work, they don't see it, and that bothers me. How, why is it losing money if so many people are using the service? Well, what happens is they go into a market, and they're in 63 countries, like they're in a lot of places, but they'll go in a market and they recruit people to drive for them at, you know, say 10, just pick a number at 10. And then as more people start driving, it pushes down the demand. And all of a sudden, these people that came in making enough money that they could do this, now they don't make enough for gas. They're at three, like, and they push it down. And Uber has this way of saying, well, it's demand, it's this, it's this. Uber always wins. And they're saying that any money that comes in, they put back into the company. That's why they're losing money as they expand rapidly, which, okay, that can happen. But again, I can't stand the way they treat the people that work for them. People come out so disenchanted and broker them when they went in. And they don't have to pay for a fleet because if I drive, it's my car, my problem, my everything. So Uber doesn't actually own anything. And that's the part of this that, you know, it's, a lot of tech things, but Uber owns nothing. They don't have a fleet of cabs mm -hmm. or a bunch of employees. And all those poor suckers who are out there not earning enough but can't do anything else, they're not going to see the rewards from this. How is it growing if, as you put it, those poor suckers are being taken advantage of? It, I, I think what happens is people, I've seen, I know people that do this. You have to have a car that's um, three, three years old, less than three years old, I believe. It might be five. I maybe right. it has to be a four door. It's all these things. You have to have all these things. Right. They finally have insurance that you can get, but it's not bulletproof, but at least they didn't have that for the first few years, which right. got a lot of columns out of that. So you set yourself up to do this, and you start doing it, and then you feel this downward pressure, so you work more hours. You work you know, into the middle of the night to try and break even. You've committed yourself to this. You've got car payments. Like You may have you know, let go of another job. I don't know. It right. starts out very rosy and it doesn't end up that way. Uh, why do they, why do they need the money in an IPO? What are they doing if there's no overhead, there's no cars, there's no fleet, there's no, uh, why, why do they need the capital in an IPO? As we're moving forward, like we, we don't talk about the cars anymore. We talk about mobility. I think we spoke about this last week. Right. So what going forward, Toyota has a lot of money into Uber, we're seeing the combination of tech and car companies, they're meeting and they're buying each other out and they're investing in each other because the future going forward is going to be not just someone going and buying a car. It's how are we going to get around 
and how are we going to move people and things in the coming years? And that's what everyone's gambling on. And Uber is obviously gambling that ride share. It's not sharing. Um, they're gambling that we're going to use this mode of transportation more and more and more. And people investing in it are agreeing with them. But there's a lot of options on the table. Nobody knows. Everyone's investing in different things and they're pushing forward in different ways. But we are seeing them teaming up with, for lack of a better word, legitimate companies. And all the car companies have um, investments in tech companies and computer companies to go into this kind of uh, kind of format. What Compare Lyft to Uber. Uh, which one more successful? Is one doing something better than the other? Uber is bigger. It's worth more. Uh, Lyft usually comes out ahead in surveys when people are, when people are asked what they how they feel about the service and the mm. people that uh, drive. So Lyft has like a nicer kind of feel to it. It is smaller. It grew smaller. It came into the arena later, but I think it's building itself better. It didn't go busting in breaking laws the way Uber did, right. and that's why it didn't grow as quickly. But for someone who likes rules, which is me when it comes to this kind of stuff, Lyft at least did it. You know, I still don't like people in a gig economy. It's not good for anybody, but at least they didn't come in blasting through the rules of every municipality and spitting out every board of councillors trying to adapt to it. Uh, Lyft decided to do this first. Is that the only reason that Uber's in, to, in on it now? It's simply because, well, if these guys are going to expand, we got to keep up. No, they've all been forecasting what they're going to do for a while now. They're waiting for the right moment. And like I said, with the economy about to tip, um, they know they have to do it in the first few months of 2019. So I, I think both of them are they're racing in the same time frame, but they've both forecast that they're going to do it for a while now. Are these ride-sharing services the be-all and the end-all? Is there a private version of this? You know, again, we're talking about Airbnb also talking about doing the same sort of thing. Well, lots of people have just decided to do the same sort of thing privately. Could we see that with, like, Uber? I mean, why do they need Uber? Why do we need Uber? Why don't we just need the guy with the car? Well, and that's a good question. They've got the name and the you know, the advertising of things and the app, the apps, it's all a phone app is yeah. what all this stuff is. So it's ever, whoever can put the money into making the app really good. It has to be fast. It has to work. It has to never fail. So if you can do that, which takes a lot of money, apps are not cheap. When the, I mean, look at Facebook. I can't stand it, but it is good. <laughs> like it's really good. Yeah. And if I can't get a signal for anything else, if I'm somewhere weird, I can always get Facebook. So the apps are very important. Um, whether this is going to be, the way everything was going, I, I feel for workers. I don't think any of us should be looking forward to this. I think it's a really bad way to have to make a living. I don't think it's fair. And it's deregulating all the safety things we put in place for decades and decades to earn. We're throwing them away so that people can chase down to the bottom of how to make a living and how to treat people that we interact with. So since we're doing that anyway, why not do it by yourself? Again, how do you tell people? If you have yeah. a roster of people, yeah. that's great. But if you want to be in on their network yeah. that yeah. sends you ding, 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 go mm-hmm. get people, you need to be part of a bigger network. Uh, this shows no sign of slowing down, though, does it? Oh, no, no. Everyone, it's about making money. And now, I mean, it's always about making money. It's always about shareholders. Um, we're just seeing it's getting so polarized, like the gap between who earns what, as you know, is just, I mean, 
it's it's crazy. There's never been a time, probably maybe feudal England, I don't know, but the gap hmm. between the people that have and the people that haven't, there's way more that don't have any, and the gap's getting bigger because of this kind of stuff. People are getting angrier, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, whenever these companies, I remember when, when Facebook uh, did the same thing, I mean, people are, well, what is it worth? Is it worth this? Is it worth that? Is it, um, is there any way of of valuing this? Does it become more valuable once it, 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 it uh, goes public? Well, the people that already hold stock in it, which is the original investors, people who have pumped money in it to keep it going, they will be richly rewarded. And again, that's not the frontline workers. That's the people who have been investing all along. And that's how they make gobs of money. When you hear these stories where you think, why couldn't I have been one of those? <laughs> like, you know, they'll be rewarded with that. Whether it holds, I, I don't know. It's huge. They're saying it's bigger than Google. Like, it's massive. So, too big to fail? I've heard those words before. I don't know. Mm. I, I don't have a crystal ball. It's going to depend on how the industry moves as well. And I don't know if Uber's ahead of it or is just been the one that went out ahead and is going to run out of steam. I, they'll have to adapt. Do we just have to face the fact that the economy is changing, industry's changing, the way we used to do things is different, therefore now this is the future? I would love to say no, but the answer is yes. I don't like it, and I can complain all I want. It's not going to change it. I just, I think one person can't change it, but all of us could change little things. And when we see things like the environment and our water and all the regulations that keep us safe when we're being told those will be stripped away fight back and it's the same with protecting workers fight back and we have enough power to push back on it but it's very very uh well overwhelming to use a word i like lately but i think anything that's been hard fought to keep us safer and to not kill us we we need to make sure we don't let those slip away so that four people can become multi-billionaires instead of just billionaires. We're in insane times. <laughs> but we love Uber. Well, We're not going to stop using it. I mean, I had friends over on the weekend, someone pulls up in an Uber. I, mean, I know, you know, I know a lot of people that use it. And again, maybe car, car sharing might be different where when the car comes to you and gets you. Like I've heard so many proposals for what the future is going to hold that yeah. I none of us know. Yeah. And for a while... This Uber kind of thing is going to be good. There'll be copycats. There'll be other people doing it. And it is handy. Like I said, that app is brilliant. Mm. It really is. I've never had a problem with that app. I've had a problem with the way they treat their employees. Uh, I can't let you go without asking you the story about Elon Musk and uh, the rumors floating around. He was on uh, 60 Minutes last night saying that uh, they might uh, they they would consider buying uh, old GM plants and such. I mean, is is that hope or is that just more PR? (laughs) I, I don't trust. Elon Musk at all. Um, if they did, it would be great to see another plant go in there. Like, I would love it. But I, I don't trust him. He, he talks a lot out of both sides of his mouth, so I have no idea. If, if someone did that, that would be brilliant. Have they got to the point where they can't, they can't do any more than they've already done without some sort of, you know, infusion of capital? Who's this? Um, Tesla, sorry. Tesla? I think their best move is to get rid of Musk. Like, he's become a liability at this point because he shoots his mouth off so much. Um, They have to get their house in order. I mean, they've developed amazing technology, 
And I'm not saying the guy doesn't have really cool ideas, but they need a grown-up in charge of that. Mm. So have they gotten as big as they can get under the current template? What they need now is to be bought out or taken to the next level. Is, is, is he the one to take them to the next level? I do not believe he's the one to take them to the next level. Um, that's my personal opinion. Uh, the company itself, it, to grow and evolve, yeah, it has to get bigger. They have to deliver more cars. And again, if they start work, looking into the closed GM things, awesome. That'd be great. Do you think they have peaked, or do you think it's a matter of time before someone buys them out? I'm not sure. There was rumors of Volkswagen um, looking at Tesla. Really? Yeah. Wow. I, Wouldn't that be the PR play after the diesel thing? Well, that was Musk when Musk was saying that he'd made a deal and he he said it right. on Twitter and yeah. everything blew up. I've heard it was Volkswagen he was talking to. Again, really? Rumor. Yeah. You know, don't quote me on That kind of stuff happens a lot, though, so that wouldn't surprise me. Car companies team up frequently or overlap in parts of their lineup. So, you know, we've seen that go on almost as long as there's been car companies. Like, they uh, will team up and fall back and then team up again. So, You know, it's interesting, even uh, Jerry Diaz talking about this, he said, you know what, uh, sort of similar response to yours, other than the electric vehicle uh, market is still so small that it's not going to help. Well, everyone is banking on it being the future. Like, every manufacturer except Mazda is banking and going electric. That's yeah. their R&D. Yeah. After they satiate themselves on all these SUVs, I mean, they're gluttons at the table right now, but they'll finally get full, and so will consumers. They're all banking on electric. Um, we've heard this for years, mm-hmm. and I, I still like hybrids because I, I, I'm kind of cautious in this, and the electrics are great. The GM killed the Volt. Great car, and they discontinue it. So that doesn't tell me their commitment is really to electrics which they said in their press release, they said they're you know doing SUVs and electrics. I say they're doing SUVs because hmm. it's easy money. It's found money right now, so they're going to try. Do you think Elon Musk is trying to market this company right now? Is he looking for buyers? I'm not. I would probably hazard a guess that his board of directors is trying to, you know, they're the ones putting deals together. Yeah. Again, it's Musk who's the face of the company, and that was always a plus and a really cool kind of thing. But I don't know. I think that's more of a liability now than it was previously. Mm. All right. What are you driving? Uh, Nissan Kashki. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> it's a little crossover. Actually, it's pretty cute. And it's, you know, entry level, and it, it's kind of cute. It sounds, like a dog, it sounds like a dog you keep in your purse. I know well, it does, and none of us knew how to pronounce it for a year. <laughs> is it a squishy? Is it a Because <laughs> it's also a Q's. Q's and S's and H's. It's a cash key, and it's actually pretty darling. Yeah. There you go. All right, Lorraine Summerveld has been with this auto writer with Post Media Motherload column in the spec. The, curtain, uh, the current column, Motherload, Overwhelmed, Overcome, Bold Over, and All the Overs. Uh, and, of course, Lorraine Summerveld has been with us. Lorraine, as always, thank you for the time. Good luck moving forward. Thanks, Scott. You too. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.